The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Ian Denier, director of several episodes in season two of the CNN original series, Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy. The series is nominated for five Emmy Awards, and Ian is nominated in the category of Outstanding Directing for a Documentary or Nonfiction Program for the Venice episode. You can catch the series on CNN. Ian Denier is a London-based, BAFTA-winning, and Emmy and Grierson-nominated producer-director with decades of experience making documentaries for the BBC and other networks. His films cover a wide range of topics, including biography, history, food, fashion, and sports, and he works in a variety of cinematic styles. He recently completed directing a one-hour documentary on the fashion house Burberry for Paramount+. Plus. Besides the episode on Venice, Ian also directed the Umbria and London episodes in the Searching for Italy series, and we touch on all three in our conversation. This was our first interview with a director of a hosted series, so it was interesting for me to learn how these shows, or at least this one, are put together, and a lot goes into them. Of course, I loved hearing what it was like to work with Stanley Tucci. He and Stanley clearly bonded over a mutual appreciation for each other's senses of humor, and Ian benefited from the respect that Stanley showed him and the crew to give them the support they needed, but also the leeway to develop their own creative voices within the series. I thought it was particularly enlightening when I asked Ian to describe his favorite experience or most memorable moment working on the series. And rather than pick something like an incredible meal the crew ate, overlooking some gorgeous Italian landscape as the sun dipped below the mountain, he chose instead to talk about several of the most technically difficult shoots he faced. This is clearly someone who appreciates a good challenge and works extremely hard and with great imagination to pull off these technical feats with a plum. One note about a word that Ian uses a couple of times in our conversation that I had never heard before. The word is recce, and it is a film term used by British film production companies referring to what we in the States would call a tech scout the period in pre-production when the director and other crew members visit the location prior to the shoot to suss out all the technical challenges of that particular location. Recce is derived from the word reconnaissance, so don't say we never educate you here on this podcast. As usual, if you like this interview or like learning new things, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Ian Denier, director of Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy. Ian Denier, welcome to Top Docs. A privilege to be here. Thank you. And also congratulations to you on your Emmy nomination for directing the Venice episode of Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy and to the entire team for 
all the nominations. Thank you. We're all very excited and surprised. Can you give us a brief logline of the series? The series is concerned with the adventures of a Hollywood staple, a performer who I think America has taken to its heart even more so this series. But a man who's been in so many films that we've all loved decided after he had medical situation where he sort of touch and go for a while, he had throat cancer. And as he lay on his back, he realized that the thing he was really interested about in life was eating mainly, I think, because he was being fed through a tube, was eating and being in Italy. And so his Damascene conversion was that he rose from his hospital bed, fully cured, and said, right, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to eat all over Italy. So it's a series where we simply follow his adventures. There aren't really any misadventures, but his attempts to eat the entire country. <laughs> he does not lack in ambition, does our Stanley. Or indeed in appetite. He's a man who can eat and drink for Europe. And he's very, very good at it. Basically, he goes around Italy talking, eating, and flirting. He's a man who people are normally naturally charmed by. Yes, certainly. There are a lot of travel and food shows about Italy. What did Stanley want to do with his show that would make it different from all the rest? I think what Stanley wanted to do, which was actually the reason that I came, that I said I would do it, was the fact that he wanted to make a film. I don't know whether how much this was sort of precognition, whether he thought about this or whether this was just the way that the idea evolved. And I should stress that I came on to direct the second season. I think what he wanted to do, and I hope what made me want to do it, was it was a film not about how to There's no recipes in it. It wasn't about cooking food. It wasn't about how you do it. It wasn't the history of Italy. It wasn't a travel show. It was not what you wanted to do. It was about what you wanted to feel about Italy. So I think, like many great actors, Stanley brings to television the ability to not only to emote about the subject, but to help the viewer feel the same feelings about Italy and Italianness. And that thing that we all, what I think for many of us is a disappointment about travel, in that we're sold the idea that a journey to a place will somehow be imbued with all of the things that place is. So I always think of somewhere like Paris, it is pungently Parisian, and somewhere like Rome is pungently Roman. London, you're never going to see the Queen. There aren't any bobbies on bicycles. It isn't foggy anymore. And there aren't any telephone boxes. You know, the things that you would love to see just around the next corner aren't there. In Italy, Stanley made you feel like all of those Italian things were not only in the frame, but they were just around the corner and through this door as well. What's the role of history and culture in the show? It's obviously an important part of it, but what are the goals in terms of introducing those elements and infusing each episode with them? Again, I don't know how much these were goals, but I know that Stanley's interests and the things that spark him, drive him, are imbued with those. Like any great recipe, there are lots of elements, but a very strong part of the recipe is an interest in the people. It's about their history, but it's about the people's history. Stanley has a very strong social conscience. Whenever there's an opportunity to espouse a cause or to, particularly in contemporary terms, look at people who have less than they should have, but they do have this great food, to bring publicity to something that's about inclusion rather than exclusion, then we're in there. Nearly every show had at least one story that had a strong social story in it as well. In Venice, we filmed in a cafe started by Afghan a political refugee, funnily enough, a filmmaker, political refugee, who turned chef and ran a restaurant and what had become a string of restaurants entirely staffed by refugees who he was bringing on as chefs. So that was a classic Stanley storyline that he jumped at as soon as he heard it. So there's a strong social conscience. In terms of history in general and the series in general, I think... The Italians, like so many nations, are very strongly aware of their history. They're aware of their sort of their federation 
very strongly regionally aware, but they are aware of themselves as a nation as a whole. As I say, it's not that old like the Germans. There's a lot to celebrate regionally and a lot to put into a national picture as well. But I don't think it was set out to be, as far as I know, I wasn't there at the very beginning, set out to be a history and food series. It just set out to be a series that sampled and held up a mirror to a national culture. Luckily in Italy, that's a very strong part of everybody's experience as well as all the other things. It also seems like a theme is the interplay between tradition and innovation and finding the balance between those two and creating something new that's a blend of both. That seems like a particular theme of the episode on Umbria. Yes, absolutely. As part of Stanley's sensibility, and I think I'd like to say for all of us on the team, we're all obviously aware of the changing climate, and the, the place the world finds itself in now. And the Italians, particularly rural Italians, seem to be particularly aware because, of course, they live with their climate. They see the subtle changes that lots of metropolitan people perhaps don't see so much. They're very proud of their cuisine. They're aware that their cuisine is changing. And part of our celebration of their enterprise, their genius, comes out in stories, as you say, like the two brothers running extraordinary, the biggest, I think, biggest market garden in Europe there in Umbria, Quintus Sapore. Yes, I think overall, we have been interested in the new, obviously, novelties, it's one of the engines of uh, factual filmmaking, but also the way in which in Italy, it very often the new brings with it a cargo of the old. Tradition is something that we always mark as well as innovation. So let's back up for a minute and talk about how the show is made. This is the first time on Top Docs that we featured a hosted nonfiction show or series. Can you pull back the curtain a bit and tell us how this show is put together from beginning to end. The show is intensively researched. We're very lucky here. We're based in London and I'd say 40% of the production team are young and Italian, not only because we need to be able to speak the language fluently when we're there, but also because Italians seem to bring with them, young Italians at birth, the ability to breathe and the ability to cook. That's what they come out of the womb with. So we're very lucky to have very rounded young people working on the show who bring with them a very strong sensibility about food, a pride in it, an interest in it, and a very deep knowledge of it. So the research period is particularly intensive. In fact, I would say it's probably the most intensive part of the show. Whichever director is assigned to a story, they have with them a producer and the producer and director go together for a very, very in-depth recce in various places that, that we, we will film and might not film. It's about sampling the thing generally. Obviously, as the director, you're looking for the way it's going to look as well as the places you're going to be in telling food stories. It is also, and I blush to admit it, it's an occasion in which you're likely to put on several pounds. I went into this weighing about 155 pounds. I think I probably put on a good 10 just in Umbria because you do have to eat all of it. My producer I work with most intensively, Francesco Ficora, seems to have a capacity to eat industrial amounts of carbohydrate and yet remain the same. So it's high energy, very intensive, a lot of eating and a lot of yeah, moving around. So the research period is very strong. Then we come back and the writing is also very, very, very intense. Everything is written in advance. And yet, interestingly, against the background of heavy pre-scripting, personally, I write down every shot, every lens change, every move of the cameras. It's a three-camera shoot in advance. Generally, much of that goes out the window when you get there. But we go into it incredibly well prepped. The wild card is Stanley. Stanley doesn't need to learn lines. He doesn't really have any scripting. Normally, I write for presenters beforehand. Again, they don't have to do it, but it just helps me as a map, as a way to get through it. But in this case, Stanley is unusual in that he expresses so much by the way he looks at a thing or the sort of grunts he makes or the lip smackings or whatever, that he's kind of not got a position to play on the field. He comes on and he can be in any position. He can do anything he wants. So the constructing scenarios around him 
in which he will come in and he is the catalyst that makes the thing happen. The characters are very carefully researched. Obviously, he's very good at bringing things out of people, but at the same time, you need people who are going to spark off him because he's quite flirtatious. So we're always looking for people that sometimes unusual thing, the person who is both an expert and a communicator and something of a show person as well. Contestant research, if you like, is quite strong, not that they're contestants, but that's quite a very important factor. So then we come back, we write it all, and then we go. Then the shooting itself, that's the other, it's very, it's all intense, actually. The shooting itself is very strenuous. We fiercely maintain our 10-hour working day. We don't eat or drink in the middle of it. Stanley has to. We stop for legal breaks, but nobody wants to sit down. If it's obviously you shot in the summer or spring and nobody wants to sit down in, in those sorts of temperatures and eat a whole load of pasta. So we eat on the fly. Everybody's completely hydrated throughout, but it is very intense. Three cameras. There's two cameras when I started and I bought a third camera on because we were aiming to a situation where we didn't do a second pass. We would stop and pick up things that hadn't quite happened, but the close-ups pass just didn't really work properly, I felt, with the technical culture of the show. So we put on a third camera, what we call the skimmer, that picks up those, you know, the, the cutaways of, of hands mixing things and, and bowls and so on. You know, you coming in to the series in the second season, the show is already pretty well established. How did you put your own sort of creative stamp on the show? And you've mentioned it here that you added a third camera. Were there other ways that you took what was already there and maybe made it a little bit of your own? Yes. So first of all, I brought in an all new crew. Not that there's anything wrong with the first crew, but I tend to work with the same family, the family of technicians that I've worked with in some cases for 30 years. I'm 63 years old and I've been doing this since I was 25. So I brought in a team that I knew, many of whom had a great deal of food experience, particularly the DOP, Andrew Muggleton, who's shot just about every chef you can imagine, and isn't a food cameraman. He's a documentary cameraman. I work with him in deserts and jungles, wherever. So I work with him all over the world. I've done war zones with him. But with the food shows that he's done, I knew that he would be able to both keep up the speed because of his documentary inheritance, and this goes for the rest of the team as well, the sound recordist, Chris Siner as well, especially, would be able to maintain sort of precision and speed at the same time. And that was something that I knew we had to move very quickly. One of the things I inherited from the first season was a knowledge that they'd had to learn on the hoof. And as, as we all know, making the first of anything is difficult because it's all pioneering, editorial and technical. So I felt that we could, by overplanning would be the wrong word, but by hitting the ground with everything written down first that I would quite like to happen, building in a 20% area in which hopefully things would happen spontaneously. And again, with one's own background in a lot of observational documentary and self-shooting observational documentary, one would be able to respond to things as they just cropped up. And that hopefully that they would, the, the sort of thing you couldn't anticipate. But the thing that I try to bring with it, apart from the technical aspect of the third camera to speed up the cookery, but also the insistence that we would have time when we'd stopped with Stanley to go back and get those cutaways that we hadn't got. The thing I bought in all of my films are slightly tongue-in-cheek in a sort of slightly faux, naive British style. I started out as a writer, as a journalist, first of all, so I've always loved the words, and in radio too, the words as much as the photography, and it's the photography I'm really there for, if I'm to be honest. So what I wanted to bring into it was increase the amount of humour, because Stan's very funny, he's very, he's as dry as the Gobi Desert, but I wanted to exploit his timing, his sort of smirking to camera, which I think makes the relationship with the viewer 
very intimate. Give him the freedom to do asides, make jokes, whatever, some of which might not work or might work. But I knew that in the writing, in the commentary, I would be basically playing around all the time, trying to make it funny. So always looking for a situation in which we could cut to something funny if something came up, but also, yes, that I'd be able to write around it to try and bring out the humour, which, as I say, my own style seems to be slightly arch. It's probably annoying to some people. Not to me. I appreciate it. Is that something you discussed with Stanley beforehand or did you just flip yeah, it in? Yeah, I think when we very first met, funny enough, we're all within London terms. We're neighbours. I, I live about, about four miles away from him. He lives in London by the River Thames and I live upstream a bit. So the first time I met him was during COVID times. We were all being so careful. It was on a Zoom. And I just, I'm hardly the most macho man. I just flirted with him the whole time and sort of slightly made fun of him. And it seemed to be the start of a lovely relationship. So yeah, most of it is either making fun of him or of the situation or giving him the chance to make sly, wry comments about what he's observing and what he's up to. So that was, I suppose, the major innovation. But the other thing that I wanted to do was to create an environment in which he would feel free to show us and I don't think this didn't happen in the first season but they were always against the clock trying to get as much in as possible would be to create a very loving situation with a team who I knew that he would love and feel safe with in which we could learn more about him because most actors I think if they can will seek refuge in being someone else and that's their raison d'etre. That's what they've chosen to do with their lives. And I felt from the beginning that I wanted to have those moments where we could try and find out a bit more about Stanley as well, why he wanted to do this. So we had a little bit more with his wife Felicity in. I don't think there was very much shot at his home in the first season, but we had a major sequence in, in London, the first thing that we shot together at his home. So yes, changes the way it's written, the way that he was treated, sort of technical changes around the way we shot it and the situations that we placed him in. I thought that was a yeah. very interesting decision to shoot a whole episode in London for a series called Searching for Italy. How did that come about? It came about because of COVID. When I got the call to see if I would be interested to come on and do it, they said, we would like to do it, stand like to do it with you. The good news is, yes, we want you. And the bad news is you're starting off in London. And I said, no, oh, that's great. So everybody else goes to relax in Naples and I have to, yeah. As it was, London is one of the biggest Italian cities in Europe. I think it's officially, I think there's a population of about 500,000 people in a city of 10 million, which is quite a significant percentage. And that's only officially. This was, I think, pre-Brexit. We had a much bigger unregistered, if you like, coterie of extended family members and so on. There's something about London that really appeals to Italians. So the decision was to do that. And that was wonderful because much of that was shot in Soho, which has been my stamping ground since I was a kid. And it's absolutely delightful. It was a voyage of exploration to go into Italian Soho, which is where so many of the foundation restaurants that became, you know, the British Italian restaurant scene started off. So we were filming some of those, which had been the focus for lurid scenes, sort of outrageous behavior. And sadly, the birth of British Italian fascism just before the Second World War. So we went there for COVID reasons and we explored in London generally what I wouldn't call an underbelly, but a sort of very rich vein of Italian experience. Fiercely British, fiercely Italian people with fantastic foods. Stanley starts that film by saying, quite rightly, you know, there's a sort of trope that British food is not very good. And for many, many years when I was growing up, it wasn't. But because we Pre-Brexit, we benefited so massively from the injection of food from other cultures, from people who came to London, Britain as a whole. It was really such a vibrant place to be. It has been such a vibrant place to be. All of the Italian chefs that we talked to while we were making that show said, there's a major problem here. Now I can't bring an Italian waiter to work in London because of Brexit, us leaving Europe. It's going to be the end of the industry. 
and do fear that we're looking down the barrel of tremendous loss of food culture in Britain because people are allowed to come here from Europe now. That's sad to hear. And it also speaks to the importance of this episode, which may in fact be recording a golden age that, Indeed so. that may disappear. So let's go back to the process of how you make these shows. How do you go from shooting to the edit? At extreme speed, there is because the success of the show has met the broadcaster always wanted on immediately. Luckily, I've grown up in an era where I've only ever cut the films that I've made. I've never handed them over to somebody else. So I shot three. I said, I'll cut two of them. And immediately they very kindly said, no, it's not going to be possible. You can only do one. So we all split up. Edit producers come in to run the different episodes. And I was able to sort of, you know, dive in and out of other people's edits to, to say, oh, yeah, if they couldn't find a shot of a bottle of water or something or other. So there's a little bit of overview, but my, as I say, uh, my colleagues, the producers on the show are all extremely able and they work with great edit producers. So we split up. The whole thing is overseen by a raft of, again, very good executive producers, very well exec. So that's what we do. So then you're against the clock. I think we had 12 weeks to cut each episode, which seemed like a luxury at first, but there's obviously cuts are going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic constantly. Stanley puts his voice on rough cuts. So the commentary has to be written very early. The move from shoot to edit is quick. I do have some Stanley questions. Besides being an amazing actor, he's an experienced director as well as a writer. What's it like for you to have him bring those skills to bear on the episodes? Stanley, I would say, is an extremely emotionally intelligent person, and that makes him a joy to work with. Obviously, there's some trepidation in knowing that you're going to be working with an extremely experienced film director beforehand, but he is not only, I don't need to use the word obedient, but he's directable. He's very collegiate. He's very much a team player. He's respectful. He takes direction. Now and again, he'll ask what lens you're using, but he leaves the job to you, which is, is joyful. I've worked with other Hollywood talents who need very careful handling because they're not used to anyone saying no. Naturally, my job is to say no a lot of the time or to say, if not, no, let's have another go at that. And some people don't like you know, having to do a second take. There's no need to do a second take with Stanley. We just keep it rolling and he comes up with it. He's very generous in every possible way. He makes his concern the well-being of everybody on the crew to, again, I don't mean to use the word the lowliest runner, but from the runner, camera assistants, he knows everybody. It's a big but a tight team. We live the highs and lows together and we play together too. So he's not somebody who wants to go off in the evening and be on his own. We live life high on the hog with him and, you know, are in the furnace with him daily. So he's great to work with. Inevitably, you come onto this having, if you've done your homework, you've watched things like Big Night, which I think is probably a sort of keystone for anybody coming onto this because you were there looking at the inside of the head of the young Stanley Tucci, making his own film, picking a subject he clearly loves very much and knows a great deal about and doing it rather well. I think it feels like a wonderful, it's very much of its time. I described him as sort of taxi driver with food. And I think it's very powerful. So seeing that, interestingly, on a technical note, stands very, very committed to the wide shot because we need to shoot quite a lot of close detail as well. There's often a tension between, with a lowercase t, there's a tension between the need to get that and his need to make sure that the emotion of the thing is being captured, preferably in the wide shot because of his interaction. One of the reasons I put another camera on was I wanted to have a chance to, where well, we are talking to several people, to cover them in one pass, three cameras, reverses, without having to stop and go back over things because that would just have evaporated. I've never dared to try that with Stan. I don't think he would, he'd want to put up with that. So, also without getting the other cameras in the shot. Not easy. That's the difficult thing because very often you're in kitchens. Very difficult because if you're in a domestic setting, invariably the, the stove is up against the wall, which means that the person at the stove 
there's nowhere to put a camera to look back. Sometimes we tried to fly a mirror against the wall behind the cooker so you can shoot into the mirror or above the cooker, which is an old trick. So you can get cutaways by shooting up above them. But that takes a lot of time to rig. We don't light anything. Very, very rare that we do. Sometimes the beauty shots of the film, we bring in one, one lamp, but it's not a lit show to keep it nimble, but also to keep it feeling, I think, a little bit more gritty. But yes, in small kitchens, that's very difficult. And that's why the recce is vital to be able to know where to put your camera. You don't have to make a decision when you get there. You already know what you're going to do going in. Having said that, that does occasionally to disasters. In Venice, we shot one sequence up in the country in the most gorgeous Michelin-starred restaurant with Antonio Klugman. A uh, beautiful restaurant, amazing kitchens. Cookers were on a central island. Everything was perfect. I reckon the light fell beautifully exactly where she'd stand. You could see the fields outside the window. So we got there and for some reason, half of the stove had stopped working overnight. She'd done a whole service the night before. So we had to shoot everything on the wrong side of the kitchen. The DOP was really upset. The light was grey. There was an industrial boiler on the wall behind her. It still worked fine. But yeah, the best place to shoot of all actually is Stanley's kitchen. Stanley has a central marble-topped island or some stone-topped island in his kitchen, 17 feet long by four and a half feet across. So it's like shooting on an aircraft carrier, but there's a lot of room to move around there. I'm sure I'm not the only viewer who experienced kitchen counter envy. Stanley as a cook, I mean, he's a really good cook. He's written cookbooks. He's not a professional chef, but he knows his way around a kitchen. How, as a director, do you work with him to bring out his knowledge and skills while complementing but not overshadowing what the chefs are doing on the show? I would love to say that there was something clever that I did, but because he is a past master at putting himself second, unlike a lot of people in his position could be, there's no ego there. Stan is certainly, everything I've seen with him, wherever I work with him, he is ego-free. He's keen to bring the best out of the other person. So even if he knows how to do the thing, I can't even think of a time when it's happened because the level of chef we're talking about, many times he's been in awe of some of these chefs, many of whom are already people he knows because he knows the food world so well. But some of them are really highly venerated. And so, in fact, I think he's the one who's nervous. That doesn't mean they're all great communicators and his real skill lies in being able to bring people out. He's a good listener and got used to knowing when he's beginning to lose interest, that being able to stop things and change things. But yeah, he's a good actor. He plays a very good sort of second fiddle. He's good at listening. In terms of his own cooking, I'd love it if he did more. But he is very, very content, even not with Michelin-starred chef, to basically be interviewing somebody. He's not there to make himself central or his cooking central. And also, I think, and a few times we have talked about this, and this is a bit strange. He sees it as a food show, but it, that's not his primary interest. That doesn't mean that actually it's something else none of us have guessed. It's just that he's driven by a need to bring people out. He's interested in the history. He's interested in the story. He's interested in the technology. He's interested in every aspect of what they're doing. The food is a vehicle to talk about those things. So he's not there just for cookery. That's one of the reasons why, as you probably know, with certainly television food shows, they're really there. They're paid for by the book. It's really about getting the books published. There is no book. It's all in the moment. And this is for the viewer. It's not some way of making loads of money out of Stanley Tucci, the book available at Christmas for everybody. Get the sense watching the show that really the food is in a way a Trojan horse for him to experience these people, find out what their stories are and make a connection. And I find myself watching every scene, asking the question, not only who are we going to meet this time, but how is Stanley going to develop a rapport with this person? And in that respect, the greeting became supreme for me. Are they going to hug? Are they going to shake hands? What's their meet cute going to be? 
The challenge of shooting the greetings is that with all the preparation I've talked about, we still get as close as possible to keeping it real sounds trite, but keeping the spontaneity that I know is a major engine for Stan. So whereas he's generally met the person just beforehand, sometimes it's somebody he knows anyway, and he's very happy to say, I know this person in advance, we've been friends for years, blah, blah, blah. But where he hasn't met a person before, when we arrive at the property, there's a lot of handshaking. He knows the story. He, he reads all of his notes beforehand, his research, he knows why we're there. He is an executive producer on the show, so he's had a hand in deciding which stories that we are going to do as well. We don't impose any of it on him. And very often, some of the best ideas come from him. He has great instincts. So when we arrive, we do meet the person. There's no sort of, we just keep him hiding in his trade or anything beforehand. But he is an actor and he is also an enthusiast. So he's not acting enthusiasm, but when he goes up to the front door, in terms of making sure it's spontaneous, it's a moment when you want to have all of your cameras rolling. You want to see his reaction. You want to see their reaction. It's a tender greeting, but I can't think of an instance where he hasn't met them beforehand, but only momentarily. The other key moment, which is more challenging, technically speaking, is the moment when he eats something. It was drummed into us, uh, into me when I began, probably the most important moment in every story is the second he reacts when the food stuff first goes into his mouth. And he knows that and he's very good at kind of, and very often he sort of turn away and sort of go <clears throat> like that. So it's <laughs> just his way of making fun of you because that is where we see the emotion. It's the money shot in any food program because he's communicating to you with his face what you can't taste yourself. I once spent a year making a series about the perfume industry because I wanted to make a film about something you couldn't see when people could only describe it. And again, it was the same, the difficult people were in raptures about Chanel number no. five, but nobody in the audience could smell it. With Stanley, with that moment, it's difficult because you have to have a camera on him. So the A camera is always his, and the A camera has to sit on a shot of his face, ready for that reaction around the time it's likely to happen. He plays it into the camera most of the time, and you do get that amazing moment of feeling. It's difficult if you're in a tight space or you're in a room where, for some reason, he has to be up in a corner or you just can't get the camera in, in which case we talk beforehand and I say, okay, when you're out, I need you to react. A camera it will be there, you know, right in your eye line here. So he's ready for it. He knows where it is. But yeah, so that's the other key emotional moment is making sure that you're ready for the taste shot. You also do a really good job of showing the chef's reaction to his reaction. Again, the advantage of having several cameras on it. Yeah. When I grew up, you only had one camera. <laughs> that, that was very hard. <laughs> one thing that I think is interesting to speculate about the series is how it's situated in terms of our culture and the whole foodie and travel and leisure worlds. A couple of times in the Venice episode, and I think it happens in another episode as well, that Stanley almost mentions as an aside that the restaurants have a Michelin star. Without being overly focused on this, I feel like this is a marker for the audience. I get the sense that people who watch this show know what a Michelin star is, and they're keen to have that pointed out to them. Again, he doesn't make a big deal about it, but it's also something that he's not going to omit either. I'm just curious about the role of the series in showing that, hey, these are elevated chefs. The pursuit of the series, I think, is a rounded experience for the viewer of Italy through his eyes. And in food terms, it's about excellence. But I think for every Michelin-starred chef, there's somebody in the shack halfway up a mountain who's never cooked for anyone, but grows artichokes in a way that's never been done before or whatever, or they're in a village in the middle of nowhere. And so the expression of that excellence doesn't have to be within a five-star restaurant. In, in the Venice film, the very first scene, we have this idea that it's got a few minutes to find this place that's just so excellent, you wouldn't believe it, you experience food that a lucky tourist would find because it's down a back alley. And he 
spontaneously turned to Cameron and said, you know, we talk about Michelin stars, this place should have a Michelin star. And so I think it's always been there for anybody in the food industry as a sort of mark of excellence, but we're not in service to it. I don't think we've ever filmed with a Michelin star chef and not said they were Michelin starred. But yeah, it's the excellence of the product, but also the excellence of the person. So there might be five business star chefs out there who just aren't so great at talking or they aren't going to spark off Stanley. So it's excellence of person, excellence of cooking, but that genius, that spark that makes you want to watch it is as often vested in someone who's maybe never been to a posh restaurant themselves. There's a duck hunting scene in the Venice episode. And then in the Umbria episode, there's a boar hunting scene. What I found interesting about both scenes is how Stanley is very nuanced in his treatment of hunting as an activity and what it means. And I think he's able to give a sense of a kind of ambiguity on his own part around hunting while certainly respecting it. In both cases, their stories where the hunting activity was very much part of the story. In fact, in the case of Umbria, it was the story. It was about hunting for wild boar. At no point did Stanley say, I don't think we should do this because it's hunting and people won't understand. For many years, I made a fishing show for Channel 4 here in Britain. The only subject I think we never dealt with in all of it was, should we go fishing or not? Because I think we felt at the time, you're not going to watch if you don't approve of fishing. I think in this case, people might disapprove of hunting, but it is part and parcel of Italian culture. And in Italy, that's what a lot of people do. There are quite a few vegetarian dishes in the series. Stan's not a voracious carnivore, but it was really about observing the people and the things that they do as opposed to having a view about hunting. Certainly in the case of the wild boar hunt, it was gruesome. We shot things that were shot. And as we were doing it, I knew it was never going to make the cut. In the first season, there was a scene where a rabbit was put into the pot. And there was an enormous amount of discussion with Stan as well about how people would react to that. And it was treated very, very carefully, very respectfully, because interestingly, we as Brits are making a series that's first and foremost aimed at the American domestic market. And Stanley's feeling is that there are sensitivities in America, maybe just metropolitan America, there aren't necessarily in Europe. Hunting in Britain is heavily criticized and a subject of much debate but it's still part and parcel of our heritage, right or wrong. And certainly he felt that in Italy, or we felt that in Italy, that was also a strong part of the story. Nothing was being killed gratuitously. The wild boar in that part of Umbria are an enormous population and be extremely destructive. There's nothing wrong with wild boar. They're just being wild animals. They don't have any moral considerations. But farmers whose crops that they predate do get together to go and dispatch them. The good thing is that every part of that animal is eaten. No animal dies and is just thrown on the wayside. It's then eaten. In the Veneto, that story is an interesting one. That story set out to be mostly about Ernest Hemingway. And we've all shot around the writing of the book, Across the River and Into the Trees. He's come back novel after a 10-year drive period and was written Venice and in France. But that features a duck hunt at the beginning. We managed to sneak a little bit of back in the end because I was very taken with it, with the Hemingway story. But it was felt during the edit that if it was a trade-off between Hemingway or some ducks and eating ducks and cooking them, then we should stick with the ducks. So that was a good example of a story that morphed. So it was more about hunting than it ended up being. That's interesting because I was going to ask you about the Harry's Bar scene, but in a different context, which is in the Venice episode, there's a noticeable absence of tourists. Obviously, Venice is, especially in the summer, is teeming with tourists. Yeah. But I think you shot in the fall. There aren't as many tourists, obviously, in the fall. But you sort of navigated around the tourist element of Venice. 
And the scene in Harry's bars is one of the few moments where it's like, okay, here's a place the tourists might visit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the most visited city, I think, in Italy, beyond Florence or Rome. 45,000 people live there. 20 million visitors come every year. So part of the Venetian story is the effect of tourists, both on the economy and frankly, on the ecological terms. That said, because these are stories about Italy, they're not about those of us who go to visit. Obviously, Stanley is a tourist himself. He's in that role in all of these films. He's the tourist on behalf of all of us. Yes, it was interesting. We shot that in the autumn when the place is almost empty. I wrecked it in the summer and it was both extremely hot, but it was, as you say, it was rammed. But when it came to shooting it, we made a decision. It was interesting that it impacted on it technically as well. The DOP and I wanted to celebrate the fact that it's a different colour in the fall. So we were much more interested in finding and exploiting a palette of greys, greens. We were too early for fog, unfortunately, which fills the streets and makes the place look remarkable. We were very keen to make it look different to the Venice that a lot of people see. Obviously, most people who go there go in this that season. As you say, every photograph, every selfie that's taken there is in F-22 sunshine. We were shooting early in the morning when it was misty, when it was blues, greens and greys. That was very lovely to do. What about shooting in Harry's Bar? At first, I didn't want to film in Harry's Bar, personally, because I thought, well, everybody's seen it and it's too famous. What's the point? But because we wanted to introduce and maintain an element of the Hemingway story, it was actually the perfect setting to talk to this guy, Andrea de Rubiac, whose great uncle had been a drinking buddy of Hemingway's in that bar. And he was absolutely wonderful and a wonderful interviewee. And so actually it was the perfect place to do it. The other thing is this is a series of films as much about drink as they are about food. Stanley has quite a profile, particularly as a cocktail maker. It was great to be able to have a really strong cocktail story, the Harry's Bar Martini, which is unbelievably powerful, was a great story to be able to show. It has no ice in it because it's stored in a refrigerated ice-filled box underneath the bar. It's pre-made the day before, so it's virtually like glycol when it comes out of the refrigerator. And you don't have to put an ice cube in because it's basically already semi-tundra by the time you drink it. We were miraculously lucky in the, the Cipriani family, who obviously run it, were willing to let us go in there very early in the morning, which was a bit frightening, especially as poor Stan had to, to down this gin at about sort of eight o'clock. You're working incredibly hard on these shoots, but what's your favorite experience or your most memorable moment during the shoots, visiting with these people and experiencing the amazing food and drink? There have been so many, Ken, that it's difficult to think of a favorite. The thing I suppose I probably enjoyed the most was I very much enjoyed the duck hunting and actually the wild boar hunting too. That was a very difficult thing in health and safety terms, very difficult to plan, almost impossible to predict exactly what was going to happen, obviously, because you've got wild animals and so on involved. But in terms of keeping everybody safe, it was very difficult. I had to change the safety plan live while it was happening, and I had to do pieces to camera to send back live while it was happening to confirm that I was changing the safety protocols as the show morphed in front of us. And keep Stanley apparently sort of dozing on a bank side with a huntress who was heavily pregnant and he was all very relaxed and chill. I enjoyed the technical challenge of that. In London, the shoot with Angela Hartnett in her back garden, her extended Italian family, she's a sort of British Italian chef, was extremely complicated. It was certainly the first thing I'd done that was a very complicated cooking process as well. It took a lot of wrecking and breaking the number of stages down and so on. So I was very pleased that that went very smoothly and the weather stayed with us from beer to eat in the garden and so on. Making fresh pasta and, and in the kitchen with her, with three generations of her family. That was very complex, very tiny kitchen, 
three cameras, one of them on a gimbal, so a very mobile camera as well. But I think the scene that I was most pleased with of all was the first scene in Venice, which was probably the most, I mean, I storyboarded the whole of the beginning because we had to move at walking speed. We had to start very early on the Rialto Bridge, preferably before there were any tourists, even that wasn't possible. I wanted to put a drone up, which is a difficult thing to do in central Venice, but I couldn't do a drone without seeing lots of people who I couldn't clear to get the paperwork done. So we had to start very early and then Stanley makes a timed two and a half minute walk from there to the bar where he's going to eat. And that was a dance through a maze of back alleys that I walked at night and during the day with a DOP on my own, storyboarded every shot, and it went like a dream. I think that was the moment when I first felt that Stanley and I were, yeah, it was going to be a lovely relationship that I'd want to keep going for the rest of my days. I fell in love with him even more then, and he's a joy. He's a man I love very much. He's a dear, dear friend and colleague. But at that moment, he trusted me to do this, to go back, to walk down there, do it again. I want you to look at your watch at this stage, around this corner. This is your reaction. It was more like drama than it was like a documentary. But we did it on the fly, running between each place so he could walk at a natural pace. So it was extremely complicated, extremely arduous and physically difficult, carrying the kit as well and moving at that speed with three-man crew, plus recorders, runners, everybody in place, and keeping them hidden. But yeah, that's, it was a very proud moment. I, I look back on that with great joy. It translates very well. I love that sequence. It's a lot of fun and it captures the essence of the place and also what we hope it will be when we go to Venice. He makes yeah. a great joke at the end, which I think yeah. is an example of the humor you talked about earlier. I didn't write that gag. He just came up because I said to him, get to the end, look at your thing, go, yes, two and a half minutes. He goes, yeah, two hours, 15 minutes. And I thought, okay, we can't go back and do that again. And I thought, oh, it was actually, this is a stroke of genius. It's very much funnier than I could have ever envisaged. So yes, it was also a scene in which I think he realized that basically while he and I worked together, I'd always be looking for a way to make him do something funny as well as something edible. It's something to do with food. Yeah, it, it, that was a major moment. But I was up a lot of the night before worrying about it. <laughs> I'm sure you were, <laughs> but you made it look simple, which is the magic of cinema and just genius. one of many strokes of genius in this series. I want to congratulate you on the Emmy nominations, on the second season, on what's going to be, I'm sure, a delightful third season. And also thank you for being with us and pulling back the curtain a bit on Tucci World. My great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I know you're a busy guy. What's up next for you? The second season. So I series directed three of them and then I went away way to do a big fashion feature for the new Paramount Plus channel. And I've come back into Tucci World, joyfully, to do a little bit of edit producing on the third series. And then I'm getting ready to do an exciting project I can't really talk about, probably with Stanley for next year. Ooh, can't wait to hear about that one. Does it involve yeah. food or drink? I think it'd be impossible to envisage any series with Stanley that didn't involve food or drink. Fantastic. I'm licking my chops as we speak. So can we presume that since there's a third series underway, he is going to make it to all 20 regions of Italy? That's something I don't know. All presumptions are sort of on and off. I think it would be great if he did. I think with all of them, he's really gone to places that he loved. What's interesting is that because it is such a big country with so many regions, I think there's about six left to discover. So as he's a man who's very intrigued by all things Italian, there's still lots more to discover. So I hope so too. Ian, do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem? I absolutely do. I have a gem so hidden and so gem-like that if it comes back into the bright light of day, 
with the sun glinting off its every many, many facets, people will fall in love with it all over again. I don't know how much they fell in love with the first time. It was made in 2003 by a Russian filmmaker called Viktor Kozakovsky, and it's a film made in St. Petersburg called Russia from My Window. I was absolutely spellbound watching this documentary, which is basically about the neighborhood that Kozakovsky lives in or lived in 2003 in St. Petersburg. What's astonishing about it is it's literally, <laughs> it's four shots from his window. So there's a look down the left, there's a look to the right, there's the area just in front, and you can just about see a park around the corner. That's it. I can't remember how long it is. I think it's at least two hours long. There's no dialogue, it's only classical music. And you will be transfixed by what happens out of his window.